welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Good morning, everyone. This morning we have three uh, Bible readings. The first is um, 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. The Ark of in Ashdon and Ekron. After the Philistines have captured the Ark of God... They took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They carried it. They carried the ark into the dragon's temple and set it beside dragon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was dragon fallen on his face, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took dragon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was dragon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dragon nor any others who entered Dragon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was very heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. Acts chapter 12, 1 to 11, Peter's miraculous escape from prison. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads and of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the, pers- after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for, to God for him. The night before Herod was... The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and the light shone on in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. The angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And the third reading, John chapter 21, verses 17 to 22. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because... Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. 
You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Verily, truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will strength stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and said and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Peter saw him. He asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? You must follow me. Well, thanks, Bree. That was a, a wad of readings there, and appreciate your, your reading those. I'm Brian Harris, service pastor at large here at Kerry, and it's my enormous privilege to introduce a new series for us today. And it's a series of what we're calling key truths, key truths, those, those really big things that we can hold on to in the Christian faith, those things that we really need to understand, really need to grasp. Grasp not just at the level of our heads, but grasp so that they become something of a default of the heart so that, that we just instinctively go back there. When difficult things arise, we just hold on to it. This is a key truth. I know I can live my life in the light of this. And the key truth that we're looking at today is, is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Or that God reigns. Or that God rules. Or that God is the one who's ultimately victorious. Or that God is the one that we can ultimately trust in. Now, now I, don't know. I don't know whether you are ever a bit of a fearful person. Uh, and if I were to say, you, you, you know, do you sometimes feel a tad nervous, a tad anxious? Uh, it would be very understandable if you answered yes. I mean, there's a lot to make us nervous and anxious in the world. I don't know if you follow the news. Sometimes if you're an anxious person, it's much better not to follow the news. But if you do follow the news, uh, this week we've had all this stock market ups and downs. And uh, I don't know if that makes you feel a little bit anxious. Uh, probably going to be a big nothing. But what if... I mean, if you go into your what-if mode, what if the economy of the world suddenly went into enormous recession? What if all our investments suddenly fell to one side? What if suddenly there was mass unemployment? What, what, what if? Could, could this be just a little start of that? I mean, if you want to worry, feel free, uh, because it's kind of inviting us to worry when you see the stock market just kind of going on this bit of a roller coaster. Or what about the threat of nuclear warfare? I mean, we've seen some of the antics of North Korea for a while now. And uh, I mean, it's not as though they're the first. Uh, more and more countries are getting nuclear warheads. And realistically, every single new nu nuclear warhead that is developed, every new country that starts to develop uh, nuclear capability significantly increases the threat of a nuclear warfare at some point. And we could wake up one day and discover that it's been uh, worse than a September 11, that we're not hearing about the collapse of some Twin Towers, but that we are hearing about the decimation of cities and that very quickly there is nuclear warfare that perhaps even destroys this whole planet. It's not actually, it's not wildly improbable. You've got to say, what are those nuclear warfare heads ever going to do? And if you want to be worried, be worried. So, so, so sometimes more personal. Sometimes we get just this little inkling of our own mortality, 
and we sense our frailty. Uh, I know for me, 18 months ago, some of you might remember, uh, and I was very nobly trying to strengthen my ankles and succeeded in twisting one of them really badly at the time. And I was struck by how significantly that can change your life. I mean, for the next three months, I was hobbling uh, very painfully in the, in, the, in the opening weeks and really, really slowly. And, 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 I, and, and still not completely right uh, 18 months later. And, and, and I was struck at the time that, you know, if, you, if you're a person who's used to being able to just do everything, if you used to being able to set the pace, and suddenly you're actually struggling to keep up and that every step is actually quite, quite sore and quite painful, life does start to change. And, and I find for myself that I'm the sort of person who likes to get into things and likes to get involved in things. And for the first time in my life, I was actually trying to get out of things and trying to think, oh, no, you know, I'm not going to be able to keep up. I'm not going to be able to do that. I, I think I'd rather just be on my own, thank you very much. And, and I was struck at how, how just that little change of health actually did impact me. And, and I say that very conscious that, that, that my story is so trivial in comparison to some of the stories that, that some of you have had and some of the, the very, very real health struggles that you might have had. And, and when you have them, you, you do realize life is frail. We're vulnerable. Things can change just like that, just, just like that. And you go back and you say, well, shouldn't I be a little bit fearful? And, and I guess it's here that this, this, this doctrine, this firm conviction, this, this, this absolute belief that we have in the sovereignty of God comes and speaks to us. Because it says to us, you, you know, no matter what happens, God reigns. No matter what happens, God reigns. And no matter what happens, God's word will be the last word. And, and no matter what's on the go, God does actually know what's on the go. And God has the ability to shape and, 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 and to, to, to make what happens happen. Now, now it's, it's what the psalmist is saying, for example, in Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord is God. Know. No, no, not just in your head, but know throughout your whole being that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are not self-made beings. God is God. The psalmist comes to, comes to us and says, and, and the psalmist says, know that. Know that extraordinarily deeply. Know that deeply within or it's the promise of Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. We know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purposes. Now, I mean, you might say, so God works everything for good? Uh, yes, but what about? What about my imminent retrenchment? What about my collapsing health? What about my difficult relationship? And, and I want you to notice that the passage does not say God works in many things for good. Or God works in everything for good except your upcoming retrenchment or whatever. It's not as though God looks at your circumstance and says, oops, forgot that one. Better put a delete in there. God is working for the good of everything except, except that thing that pertains to you. No, no, actually in everything, God somehow is working for good. Now, now I don't want to be trite about this. That isn't quite the same as saying everything that happens is good. That is not what the passage says. The passage says that God has the power to work everything out for good. 
And that in every circumstance, God is looking at what is taking place and is saying to us, how can this be worked for good? How can a positive come from it? And therefore, in every circumstance in which I find myself, I'm actually able to just sit down, sit down, take a deep breath, and say, actually, God, you are at work here. God, you are doing something here. God, you know what's happening. God, I can trust in you. Now, at this point, you, 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 you might want to object a little bit because sometimes when we talk about the sovereignty of God, uh, people sometimes say, yeah, but does that mean, does that mean that we're really just puppets on a string? Does that mean that actually what we do is of absolutely no consequence whatsoever? So everything is preordained. God knows everything. And actually we just act as in a play and the script has all been said and actually nothing that we, we do is of any significance whatsoever. And, and it's a question worth thinking about because, because sometimes the sovereignty of God has been understood in that, that, that very passive kind of a way, in a way which suggests that actually our role is of no consequence whatsoever. I uh, you, you might know, and I mean, hopefully you do know, because this is Carey, the church that uh, we named after William Carey, who was the great pioneer of the modern missionary movement. And William Carey, uh, when kind of convinced that the church needed to embark upon mission to those who had never heard the name of Jesus, proposed that at, at an assembly of, of the Baptist Union back in the United Kingdom, it was in the late 1700s. And as he enthusiastically told everyone how God was calling this, this union of churches to a new day of mission, the president of that day said to him, sit down, young man. If God wishes to save the heathen, he will do it without your help and without mine. Sit down, young man. If God wishes to save the heathen, he will do it without your help and without mine. Now, no, 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 that's an extraordinary statement of, of kind of saying, actually, sovereignty means that there's nothing for us to do. Actually, sovereignty means that God just does it. If God wants to save the heathen, well, then God's going to do it. And it's not going to be because of anything that, 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 that we actually do. Now, now that is not, let me, let me underline this, that is not what the Bible teaches at all. In fact, the Bible teaches over and over again that our actions make a difference, that we have choices, that, 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 that we can go in one direction or we can go another. God, God calls us in a particular pathway, but if we go in another, well, that's a possibility, and, and there are consequences for that as well. But because God is sovereign, because God is sovereign, it doesn't mean God forces the decision. It means because God is sovereign, he is still able to work his, his purposes out no matter what actually happens. It's rather like you could imagine God as, as the coach, an incredible sports coach of, of, let's say, a soccer team. And the soccer team, it kind of plays in a particular way, and the ball goes here and the ball goes there, and the opposition does this, that, and the other thing. But the coach is always one step ahead. And while you can't always say just what's going to happen, the supreme coach is able to say, actually, this is not what the new strategy needs to be. This is not what the new strategy needs to be. This is not what the new strategy needs to be. And as a result of that, still always gets the victory. Or perhaps we see it in Genesis chapter 20. Now, we've already read a number of passages earlier on today, but this is not one of them that we read out. But Genesis chapter 20, verse 3 to 7, is a, a very fascinating account. And you, 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 you might like to look at Genesis chapter 20 in your own time. It's the account of, of Abraham, Abraham making a mistake, exactly the same mistake which he had made earlier on, of going into a new part of, of, of the territory and, and, and the land of Canaan where he was walking around. And he gets there, and he's very conscious that his wife, Sarah, is a beautiful woman. And, and that's great for a husband to, 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 to be aware that his wife is a beautiful woman. So there's, there's no blame on Abraham for that. But the trouble is, he's, he's not just aware that she's beautiful. She, he's aware that she's dashingly beautiful. 
And he's aware that men look at her and desire her very greatly. And he's aware that when you're new in a place and you don't have power, and when you're living in the ancient world, that what happens very often is that the ruler of that particular territory will organize that you get killed so that your wife is suddenly a widow and available to marry him instead. And so Abraham, on two occasions, and we're looking at the one in Genesis chapter 2, when he gets to a new territory, when he gets to the territory, says, Sarah is my sister. Sarah is my sister. So I have no special ties to her. She's just my beautiful sister. Thank you very much. And, and in fairness to Abraham, I mean, it's an interesting study in, in truth and half-truth. It is actually a half-truth. Because if you know the story, and let's remember this is the ancient world, I'm not advocating this at all, but Abraham is actually married to his half-sister. Uh, Sarah is his half-sister. They, they, they had the same fathers, different mothers. Ancient world, very different rules. Uh, so he's, he's married to her, and he just decides that that's the card he's going to cash in. I'm, it's my sister. No, I'm not married to her. He doesn't say anything about that. And so Abimelech takes Sarah into her serene, and it would just be a matter of time before he ultimately sleeps with her. But before he does, God intervenes. And God causes all kinds of sickness for him, comes to him in a dream, shows him that what he's done is wrong. And in that dream, in Genesis chapter 20, we're told that Abimelech is told, you know, this woman is a married woman. She's married to Abraham. And you are not allowed to have her in your harem. And you've got to return her. But I'm giving you an option. You can kick up a great big fuss about that. You can say, well, you've paid all kinds of goods for a marriage, and you've paid a dowry for her, and you've done this and that for her. You, you, you can do that, and you can say, you refuse to let her go. And if you do that, well, you'll be dead, and your family will be dead, and you'll all be exterminated. Or you can just, sorry, what did I say to get that right? Break down? You, you can refuse to do that. Did I say that? You can refuse to do that, and you'll be dead. Or you can just let her go and ask Abraham to pray for you, and you'll be fine, and your life will flourish. You, you, you have an option there. And Abimelech, very wisely, chooses to let her go. And all is well for him, and everything goes along really nicely. Now, now, what does that say about the sovereignty of God? It actually says that no matter what we were going to do, no matter what Abimelech was going to do in that circumstance, and he had a choice there, God's purpose would ultimately reign. I mean, this was Sarah and Abraham. This was the line through which uh, the Jews were going to be born. God was not going to have that line compromised, come what may. didn't matter how, how little faith Abraham had, that was just not going to be violated. And so God says, well, that's not going to happen. But, hey, the way that it happens, the way that it happens, the way it happens for you, Abimelech, I mean, that's, that's open. You can kick and scream against this, and then your life will go really badly. You can embrace this, then your life will go really well. That's the openness that's there. Now, now, now the sovereignty of God, in many ways, is about that. It's about God's constant invitation to us. God invites us to say that ultimately, you know what? The, the really big lines in history are set. The really big lines in history are set. The little lines, they're very open. And, and, and we so often are part of the little lines in history. And God invites us to be working towards those big lines and to be supporting those big lines. God invites us to be part of God's own purposes. We have choices. And the, the invitation of Scripture over and over again is choose life. You know, I've set before you life or death. Which one are you going to choose? Choose life. And, and we do it with the confidence that no matter what seems to be happening in the short term, ultimately God rules, God reigns.
Let's take a couple of other passages, really, really fascinating passages from Scripture that help to underline this, this teaching over and over again. 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 to 7. 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 7. I don't know if we can project it up on the screen again. Uh, but the account of, of, of the Israelites after a disastrous battle. Now, now, let's understand that in the ancient world, when you went into battle, uh, you went into battle against another country. Each country had its own local god or gods. And was assumed, therefore, that whichever country won, uh, it wasn't actually thought, and this was just part of the, the thinking of the ancient world. If you won in battle, it wasn't because your soldiers were stronger. It was because your God was stronger. And therefore, in a very real sense, every battle that took place in the ancient world was seen as a battle between the gods that was nevertheless just being enacted by these physical soldiers who were here below. But the victorious, the, 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 the victorious side, that was because their God was stronger. And so you can understand how enormously significant it is in this day, described in 1 Samuel chapter 5, when the Israelites lose. They've been in battle against the Philistines, and they lose. And they know they lose because the sign of their God, the Ark of the Covenant, is taken captive. And it's taken captive, and because it's viewed ultimately as being a battle between the gods, the Ark of the Covenant is taken, and it's taken by the Philistines, who, who just delighted that they won the battle, naturally. And, and, and they, they, they delightedly take the Ark of the Covenant, and they take it to the tent where their God, Dagon, is standing. And they, 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 they take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in Dagon's tent and they put it beneath Dagon. So here Dagon is on a pedestal. The Ark of the Covenant is there below. And the imagery is quite clear. Dagon, thank you for your victory. You've helped us to be victorious over the Israelites. Now enjoy your victory. Gloat. As you kind of look down on the Ark of the Covenant, gloat. Say, yeah, ha, ha, ha. I'm stronger than you, Yahweh. I beat you in battle. Thank you very much, Yahweh. And, and Dagon is left to do that. But then the unimaginable happens. Because repeatedly, if you read the account, Dagon falls off his pedestal. And, and Dagon, who's supposed to be gloating in victory because he's won the battle, actually lies on the ground. Actually, it finishes in even further, further away as, as you go, go through the passage. We're told that Dagon scampers away and loses his head and his hands. He's, he's so desperate to get away from the presence of Yahweh. And what is more, that, that, that Dagon having you know, been put back on his pedestal time and again because he's, he's trying to run away from Yahweh, loses his hands and his heads, and then we're told that all kinds of diseases start to break out amongst the Philistines. And in the end, the Philistines beg, just beg the Israelites to take the Ark of the Covenant back again. It's, it's a fascinating account. It's a fascinating account because it teaches things at multiple levels. But it is, if one great thing, it is as a reminder that no matter what is happening for the people of God, and that would have been the Israelites at that point in time, no matter what is happening for the people of God, Yahweh still reigns. God is still God. And that even when we think that God's people are defeated, God is still God. And, and, and that actually, even when Yahweh seems to have lost the battle, he actually has won the battle. And that, 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 that even when, when Yahweh is put into this tent besides Dagon, somehow he's still able to work. And the Philistines in the end say, take it away, take it away. Do, do, do you see the portrait that's been painted there? It is one of the absolute sovereignty of God. It is saying to us, even when we lose, God somehow is still in control. Now, take a breath at that point. Take a breath. What might that say to us today? 
we're in a world where if you're part of the people of God, and if you said yes to Jesus, you are. If you're part of the people of God, you might often feel that we're losing because the church doesn't really seem to be winning at this point in history. Uh, realistically, I think 2017 was a horrible, difficult year for, year for the church here in Australia. And you might sometimes feel a bit discouraged, and you might feel down, and you might wonder, you know, what's going on. This passage actually says to us, actually, no matter what's happening outwardly with you, God still reigns. God is still in control. And God sometimes is working in an astonishing way, even when it doesn't seem like it. Let, let, let's look at another passage. Uh, let's think about this passage here. Fascinating one, Acts chapter 12. Another one which was read to us. Very, very interesting. Uh, right about the year 44 AD, and persecution is starting to bite into the life of the church. And Herod starts to arrest various people. And in a devastating blow to the church, absolutely devastating, James, one of the apostles, is beheaded. And, and we're told James is beheaded, and worse, or not worse, but just as bad, Peter has been arrested. And it looks as though within 24 hours, Peter will be beheaded as well. It's, it's really bad news for the church. Key leaders kind of being picked off, uh, and James already beheaded. And then, of course, as you read Acts chapter 12, you, you read this astonishing miracle that as Peter's there in prison, uh, he knows that it's the night before he's likely to be beheaded, and surprisingly enough, uh, I mean, you've got to learn something from this, Peter knows that he's probably going to be beheaded the next day, and he sleeps so deeply that when God performs the miracle and sends an angel to him, the angel, we told him in the passage, has to kick him in the side to wake him up. That's how deeply he's sleeping. I mean, that's peace for you in the midst of conflict, isn't it? And, and that, in fact, as the whole miracle is taking place, Peter the whole time is thinking, this must be a dream. This must be a dream. He, he goes, he walks out the prison. The doors automatically open for him. And he's thinking, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming. It takes a while for him to actually realize that this miracle has taken place. And as you know, the account in Acts chapter 12, Peter is set free. So James is beheaded. Peter is set free. Now, now that's got to say something to us. You see, if, you, if you're a thinking person, I'm sure that you're all thinking people, you, you, you recognize that life's common dilemma is coming across here. I mean, it's just such a common dilemma in life. Why does one person get the miracle and another one doesn't? Why is it that some person, this person here, maybe gets, gets this terrible diagnosis of, of a terrible illness and everyone prays for, 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 for that person and, uh, and they live and it's a miracle. And someone else gets the same diagnosis and everyone prays for that person, that person dies. Why one, not the other? Why was it, you see, you've got to ask this question. I mean, it's lovely that Peter was rescued by a miracle. But why didn't the miracle happen for James? I mean, you've got to ask that, that question. If God can do it for Peter, why didn't he do it for James? I mean, had James slipped up? Was James kind of on the quiet a horrible person? Oh, I mean, what, what, what's, no, no, it's got nothing to do with James. Nothing to do with Peter. It's got everything to do with the purposes of God, the sovereignty of God. And, and actually, if you play it forward, this passage becomes even more fascinating. Because it takes place, as I say, in the year, we think it's probably the year AD 44. Play it forward, 20 years, A.D. 64. Peter, he's been rescued really miraculously back in A.D. 44. But in A.D. 64, we know that Peter was crucified, crucified upside down. No miracle for him on that day, 
No miracle for him on that day. Why the miracle back in AD 44? Silence, AD 64. Why? The purposes of a sovereign God. The purposes of a sovereign God. Different purposes. You, you, you see, God, who knows what he's doing, has a script which he invites each of us towards. And, and they're different scripts, and they're, they're not the same. And back in AD 44, God was able to say to James, come and be with me, which in the words of Philippians 1.23, to be with Christ, which is far better. James, your work is done now. James, you have been a wonderful servant. James, you are not going to be a martyr for the church. James, this is your moment. This is your time. It's fine. Peter, another 20 years that you still got to work at this. Another 20 years you still got to work at this. And perhaps it could have been. I mean, I don't know. But perhaps on that day, and I suspect it didn't happen like this, but it's within the realm of possibility. But perhaps in that day in AD 44, when, when James has been beheaded and Peter is set free, Peter being the impetuous kind of person he is, perhaps just for a moment he thought, so sad about James, but, but clearly, clearly I'm the favorite one. You know, I was set free. Clearly I'm super special. You know, isn't it great? You know, God does all these amazing things for me. I'm incredible. I'm this great person of faith. Then what did he feel on AD 64? Crucified, upside down, perhaps while crucified, perhaps while dying back then. Perhaps he thought it would have been much better to be James, at least beheading as quick. This crucifixion is going on forever, slow, painful, horrible. The purposes of God, different scripts, different stories, but God knows what's what. Know that the Lord is God. Know that the Lord is God. Know that the Lord is God. I, I think perhaps though, and this is the last passage I'll be looking at, it's probably clearest in, in a passage that I think is really extraordinarily poignant. John chapter 21, and perhaps we can have that flicked up as well. John chapter 21, 17 to 22. It's a little exchange. It comes after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's an exchange between Peter and Jesus. And let's just read it out again. In John chapter 21, 17 to 22, Jesus has asked his question that, that's so famous. You know, Peter, Simon, Peter, do, do you love me? Uh, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then this, this statement that you've got to hear what was being said here. It's, it's, a, it's this, this body blow that Peter gets at this point. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. It was a coded word for saying, you will be crucified for me. And Peter gets this news, so I've got to feed God's sheep. And then Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, you are going to be crucified for me. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. So, Peter, do you know what's going to happen to you? Follow me. You up for it? 
And Peter does the understandable at this point. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. In other words, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had asked, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? I mean, if I'm going to be crucified, you know, tell me that I'm not going to be alone. Tell me that other people are going to suffer in a major way as well. You know, what about him? So what's going to happen to him? Uh, you know, is this going to happen to all of us? I mean, it's a very natural question, isn't it? Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? What is that to you? You must follow me. Astonishing, isn't it? So if I have said to you that your script is crucifixion for me, don't turn to the next person and say, but what about them? What is that to you? You must follow me. And, and, and that's so extraordinarily true of life, isn't it? I mean, I, I've been a pastor for long enough to have seen so many different things happen to people. And I've seen wonderful things happen to people. And I've seen people who, who I thought would never, ever really make it in life just break through and rise and rise. And they have lives which are great and they have wonderful children and, and it's just great. And, and, and I have seen people who I would have thought that everything would go really well for them and just doesn't, just doesn't. They struggle in ways which seem unfair. And, and, and you might have heard William Blake's uh, poem, Auguries of Innocence. Every day and every night, some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to endless night. Every day and every night, some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to endless night. And we don't know which one's going to be for us. We don't know. It doesn't work the same way out for everyone, does it? Some people struggle enormously. And you know, when Peter asked that question, so you've just told me that my end is going to be crucifixion. What about him? You know, is he going to suffer as well? What, what is that to you? You follow me. Follow me with courage. Follow me with dignity. Follow me with hopefulness. Follow me with trust. Follow me knowing that actually I am in charge of all of history. Follow me knowing that actually the big lines are secure. And that yes, in these little lines that I invite you to, you can kick and you can resist and you can go in a different direction. The big lines will stay true. The greatest truth of history is that in the end of all time, we will all be saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And God is love. And God's love has triumphed. And, and, and the sovereignty of God is something which comes and reassures us in the present moment. Let's be quite clear about this. The sovereignty of God is an eschatological category. So, so sorry, that just sounds like an absolute jawbreaker. But it simply means this. The sovereignty of God is true ultimately at the end of time. It is demonstrated at the end of all things. It is not necessarily demonstrated every second Tuesday. It is not something that you'll necessarily say, oh, God is sovereign, therefore tomorrow it will go easily. Or even the next day it will go. That's not what the sovereignty of God means. The sovereignty of God means that ultimately God's is the last word. 
And ultimately, if we are people who bow the knee to Jesus and say yes to God, we are people who no matter what the particular scriptures that we have been called to live out for God, no matter what it is, be it an every day and every night, some are born to sweet delight, be that your script, that's great. And if it's been endless night, that's tough. But you know what? For both, if you said yes to Jesus, the eternal song will be, Jesus is Lord. God reigns. God is love. God is the Lord of all history. Let's pray together. And Lord, we thank you for the story that you've invited us towards. A story that ultimately, when put together with all the different stories that have been written, somehow will tell the account, God is love, God is love, God is love. And we acknowledge, Lord, that sometimes here below, it seems a confusing story. Sometimes it seems unfair, and sometimes we want to ask, you know, what about that person? What? And we have all our questions. But Lord, help us to trust ultimately in your goodness. And thank you that you reign, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Amen.